Okay, I'm going to ask you to take your seats, if you will. Great to invite you to socialize uh, at the end of the service. Love you to head over to the White Horse if you are new. We'd love to meet you, get to know you a bit better. If you want to hear better, I just encourage you to take a seat uh, in the middle block here. There's plenty of seats still available, especially at the Tim's at the front, guarding several seats. So if you'd like to come and sit closer, get a better audio experience, then I encourage you to do that. Um, yeah, just, I just want to encourage you as well. It's, I, I love this service. It's fantastic. Um, it's easy to think that we're a group of 30-plus-ish young professionals. Um, but I just want to encourage you. We have one of my dearest friends here is uh, 80 in two weeks' time. I'm going to be celebrating her birthday. She's, uh, we're not going to celebrate it quite this week, but uh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. She doesn't look anywhere near 80, but she is. Um, and, and, you know, we have, a, we have an amazing spread of, of ages and stages here uh, at St. D's. And, uh, and if you're watching online and you think, oh, this is, very this is a very lively service. It is a lively service. But you can, we've got comfortable sofas. We would love you to come and uh, participate as much as fully, as richly as you'd like. And no one would look at you if you decided that you weren't comfortable standing up for half an hour to worship. We would just love you to be here. So if you're thinking this isn't the service for you, maybe it is the service for you. You. We'd love to welcome you. We certainly would be delighted to, to join forces with other more senior, experienced, and wise members of our congregation. We would love you to be here because we are needing one another, older and younger. We need each other to grow in faith, and we want to encourage us across the generations to learn from another, one another and encourage one another. Let's uh, read today uh, from Ezekiel. Um, I've been given the passage uh, chapters 40 to 46. That's no small feat um, because this is a significant amount of teaching. But I'm going to focus myself in uh, on Ezekiel 43. And I'd love you to follow, if you would, in one of the Bibles, the Green Bibles, or uh, on devices. I'd love you to, again, we're trying to help us to handle the Word of God well. And uh, my personal preference is to use paper. But as long as you've got sight of uh, the Word, then we can all work through it together. Uh, page 830, thank you, Tim, in the Green Bibles. The glory returns to the temple. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I'd seen at the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, Neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts besides my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices, so I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and their lifeless idols from their kings, and I will live among them forever." Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may never be ashamed of their sins. Sorry, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them, that's a really important bit. They were, <laughs> that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan. 
And if they are ashamed of all that they've done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. Well, again, it's a challenging set of passages here in Ezekiel. But what we've got is this really important uh, picture of the restoration of the holiness of the temple itself. And I want to put this in some sort of historical significance. Ezekiel was taken into exile in Babylon in 597 BC. Remember that the clock ticks forward before Christ and backwards afterwards. So as the numbers uh, get bigger, you're further away from Christ and smaller towards Christ, but then smaller from Christ and then bigger further away from Christ. So if you like, history is like an hourglass and Christ is at the center. When Ezekiel was taken to exile in Babylon, that meant that Judah, the nation, that's the nation Israel, was effectively divided into two physical groups. And remember that King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, was extremely wise. And he knew that if he could take all of the intelligent and learned and educated and religious people to Babylon, he could strip the heart of power out of Israel, and then he could reform it in the image of uh, what it looked like to uh, be a Babylonian. He wanted to re-enculturate the Israelites in a Babylonian image. And so, don't bother with general Joe Public. Just take all the leaders, reform them, and then reinsert them maybe at a later stage, and then inculcate the culture, and therefore Babylon could extend its cultural uh, expression, if you like, beyond its own borders. They wanted everyone to kind of deal in dollars, if you like. So here was a way of making that happen. And I want you to imagine what it was like for that remnant who remained. Now, Solomon's temple, I want to uh, illustrate it here. Imagine this is Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple remained in Jerusalem. This was the seat of God's presence, but Nebuchadnezzar, that Babylonian invader, had actually installed a king of his own choice to take care of Israel, and that was King Zedekiah. Now, King Zedekiah believed, if you like, and probably rightly so, that the presence and power of God was no longer really residing in the temple, but it had gone with all the people who'd been taken to Babylon. So I want to imagine, if you like, that the flame of the power of God is burning not in the temple at the moment, but over here in Babylon. Let's pray that doesn't catch fire. (laughs) A Babylonian chronicle of the time says, in the seventh year, in the month of Kislev, the king Akkad mustered an army and marched to Hattu, See, all the names have been changed because, of course, this is a Babylonian map. He encamped against the city of Judah, and on the second day of the month of Adar, he captured the city and seized its king. A king of his own choice, he appointed to the city, and taking the vast tribute, he brought it to Babylon. What that means is that that Nebuchadnezzar stripped out the temple and took basically all of the temple wealth back to Babylon and just left this small remnant here in the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Now, it must have been pretty depressing, if you like, to perceive temple worship, which was once so grand, so powerful, so great, so significant, uh, as it now was. 
a small remnant of people, ill-equipped, if you like, for the task of managing uh, and, and, and uh, outworking, if you like, the law of the temple. And for 10 years, the temple in Jerusalem was in neglect and was defiled. And this is really important to understand in terms of the journey of the temple. Remember that the temple was born out of fire. It was born out of the altar. We began with Abraham and his covenant with God. There was a covenant of fire. And then there was an encounter between Moses and God uh, on the mountain, which led to the Ten Commandments, which then were installed into uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which carried the law of God into the Promised Land. And then that was installed into the temple, which became the residing house of the glory of God. And the altar of fire was the means by which you could enter into the temple since you needed to be cleansed to encounter God. So the temple is not just a building in the way we would know a building. It's not even a church in the way we would know a church. Because the work of the church is already sanctified. We've already been through the fire. But the work of the temple is to sanctify you into the presence of God. Therefore, it's much more fundamental, if you like, as a building. Its material value is significant to you spiritually because we are a gathering of already sanctified saints. If you've asked Jesus into your life, then you're one of these. But if you were entering into uh, the temple in Jerusalem, you were coming as a sinner who needed sanctification in order that you could encounter God. So this is a kind of fundamental part of what it meant to have faith to encounter God again. Now for 10 years, that Jerusalem temple was neglected and defiled. And Zedekiah's counsel was Jeremiah the prophet, who we're going to be looking at next month. Again, we're going for the heavies this summer. And Jeremiah, he was not kind of, you know, you run in your lane, I'll run in mine, or, you know, like, you know, you do you, or anything like that. He was like straight down the line. You know, he was properly on Zedekiah's case in a major way. But Zedekiah didn't listen, and it says in 2 Kings 24, 19, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, he, he also formed a secret alliance with the Egyptian king, and because he'd been installed by Nebuchadnezzar, that was kind of a bad decision, because he effectively was trying to shirk the power of Nebuchadnezzar, create an alliance with Egypt, and then he'd become a proper king, not a puppet king. But Nebuchadnezzar got wind of that, and it was a bad alliance because Egypt was weak, Babylon was really strong. And so Nebuchadnezzar came back. Well, he didn't even come back. He basically sent his chief executioner to turn up in Jerusalem and kill everyone and destroy the temple. And so in 587, so remember that's 10 or 11 years on towards Jesus, the temple was destroyed. They took everything of significance and every one of significance to Jerusalem as their slaves. And I want you to understand that backstory because when we're looking at Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel's prophecy comes 25 years into his exile in Babylon and 14 years after the destruction of temple. So 14 years after that had happened. If we're going to understand Ezekiel's temple prophecy, the fact is that despite the detailed prophecy, this new temple doesn't get built, not at least for 100 years. And the second temple gets built around 516 BC. So we've got this period of kind of lament, of recalibration, and of a real kind of moment in history to look back and go, oh my goodness, what went wrong? In chapter 40, verse 1, uh, we see this uh, picture, if you like, of 
uh, of the temple restoration, you know. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he took me there. Pretty detailed. You know, this is a moment history where there's revelation of what's happened. And I find it so fascinating and so powerful that 25 years after inculcation into Babylon, Ezekiel still remembers. You think about anything that happened 25 years ago, tell me exactly what happened on this day in history. You know, how did it feel? And and are you still animated by it? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had been working extremely hard on guys like Ezekiel to turn them into Babylonians. You know, they'd spent 25, can you imagine 25 years? For some of you, that's your lifetime. 25 years in another culture to have all of that passion washed away from you. And here, 25 years later, 14 years after the destruction of the temple, Ezekiel's coming back with fire. And it could only be the Lord. Details matter. Like this is not some sort of cultural religion that you kind of win or lose depending on where you are. God speaks powerfully through and directly through Ezekiel. You know, it, it's a challenge to the idea that faith is a sort of social construct. You're only a Christian because you happen to be here in England. You know, and we're, we're, we're Christian, apparently. You know, your faith is determined by your geography. No. Your faith is determined by your convictions and by revelation of the true and living God. And here, this is what Ezekiel experiences. In 43 verse 2, again, we were introduced to the voice of God. This is a key theme in Ezekiel. I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. And and, and I guess I, I mentioned, you know, I think maybe last week when I was preaching last about this idea that when God is speaking, he is speaking judgment, but judgment isn't what we think it is. Judgment isn't something we're to shy away from. Judgment is the encouragement that the Lord is speaking. That actually judgment is a gift of correction and it's a sign of love. There's nothing more malign in our spiritual experience than the silence of God. And there was nothing more malign to the Israelites than the silence of God. For them, the destruction of the temple was the destruction not only of a physical building, but a sign of reconciliation to God. It was like one of those Hollywood moments, the sort of Indiana Jones moment, when you know you see him sort of rushing towards the bridge and, and the kind of bad guys are running along behind him and then suddenly someone blows up the bridge and the bridge kind of crumbles into the ravine and you're like looking at this cliff edge going, no, what's he going to do? And then, you know, amazingly, there's a secret rope bridge or something you can't even see and then he runs across it. But that's not like that for the Israelites. There's no rope bridge. When they see the temple destroyed, this is a gateway to encounter with God. This is their path to encountering and experiencing God. And it's just been blown up. Like, what's that mean for you when you're already a slave in a foreign nation? You see your doorway to hope close. God speaking, I saw the glory of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord. It was like there was a glimmer of hope. The gateway is open. There's an opportunity that the Lord is going to make a way. He's going to mend a bridge and we're going to find ourselves in his presence again. Ezekiel reflects in verse 3 that the vision of God's building is like a vision of God destroying. And the response was, I fell face down. I think one of the key challenges that Ezekiel offers us is to reconnect with the reverence of God. 
something that our contemporary Christianity often neglects. God becomes a sort of supportive friend. You know, church becomes a safe space. It's like, oh, yes, you know, here I am, Jesus, my best friend, Jesus. You know, and, and I, I've heard sort of, you know, lovely, sweet iterations of this in prayer. Oh, Papa God, you know, Abba Father, wonderful. They're, they're true and real and great. But then we have this, like, voice of fire and thunder and this mighty God, this, this reverent God who we, we throw ourselves face down in his presence. Ezekiel is reacting directly to the ambivalence of the remnant in Judah during Zedekiah's brief reign. This idea that God is sort of distant, friend maybe, quite friendly, maybe quite British and ambivalent. Oh, you do you. I'll just crack on over here. Don't worry, I don't want to upset anyone. Just get on with whatever you feel is, you know, comfortable for you. Yes, temple prostitution, I'm sure that's fine if that's what you're into. Or, oh, no, don't worry, go ahead and, you know, set up some other false gods too, why not? There's plenty of space, we want to make sure that everyone is welcome. You know, this is, this is what Zedekiah was thinking. Oh, yeah, you know, problem. I mean, come on. God is over there in Babylon, really, with all the, the really learned and religious people. We're just in, having a tough time over here. We're going to crack on in our own special way. In 2, Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles, it accounts that at this time, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful and followed the abominations of the nations. They polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. It's a pretty, like, damning school report right there. You know, Jeeves has not had a good term so far. Uh, he has unfortunately been exceedingly unfaithful, following the abominations of the nations. Uh, and uh, he's made the holy place uh, polluted. Now, what they'd actually done was, I'm going to try this without burning my hands, they'd, they'd sort of, if you like, taken out an idea of the presence of the Lord uh, and placed inside the house of the Lord their own house, which we'll see later in this passage. They placed a sort of an internal temple of their own making inside the temple that God had called them to make and keep holy. Now, there was still a fire, maybe a smoldering wick of the Lord still present in that temple, but the temple that was, even though physically still standing, wasn't the temple that they'd been called to honor, a temple inside the temple. I wonder so often in my own life, whether I've not created a temple inside God's temple. It's easy in ministry, doing those kind of things. I try and hold leaders to account and I try and make sure I'm held to account by leaders. Create a little temple, temple of Will Vanderhart, inside the temple of God. Ah, you know, just a few things for you. Just, you know, massage the ego. Like, you know, do something special. Get praise. People pat you on the head. A little temple to Will Vanderhart. Surely God doesn't mind if I set up a little temple to me inside his temple. There's plenty of room. In our own lives, it's easy to set up a little temple inside the temple of God. Find little ways just to pull back a bit of the glory that he is worthy of, that he is due. Feed ourselves a little. It's funny as well, these jars are transparent. You know, one could be the other kind of be the same thing really no one would know just a challenge 
we set up a little temple to ourselves inside God's temple. As we see next month when we move into Jeremiah, Zedekiah's ambivalent to God's holiness led him to sneer at the prophet's warnings. There are specific warnings in Jeremiah's temple sermon against Zedekiah. I mean, as I say, Jeremiah doesn't really pull any punches. But uh, in his temple sermon, which we'll look at, I think, in detail, he condemns the false belief about the temple not being destroyed because it was God's dwelling place. So this was an idea that the temple was kind of impervious. No one can break the temple. I mean, we couldn't break it. You couldn't break it. No one could break it because it's God's dwelling place. Sometimes as Christians, we can lean on that whole idea of once saved, always saved. I'm going to go on a little vacation for a minute, a moral holiday, once saved, always saved, you know, so I've not really got that much to worry about. Actually, Jeremiah is saying the temple could be destroyed. He condemns the hypocrisy and the presence of the people who commit different sins and come to the temple to worship Yahweh on their journey. He, he talks about the defilement of the temple by placing idols specifically in it. And you'll know that at the time it was particularly a fertility cult called the Asherah cult and uh, the Bull cult, which were the most preeminent cults of the day. The Bull cult was the cult of the bull, which we see cropping up several times in the Old Testament. The Asherah cult was the fertility cult and had a sort of a large phallic kind of pole. Everyone kind of knew what it was about. It's a bit like a red light. Everyone looked at it and went, wow, look, there's a massive penis on the hill. Sorry for the recording, but that was basically the sort of idea of it. It was basically a sort of large fertility symbol. And, you know, this is the sort of thing Gideon was smashing down in the night. Uh, these things cropped up all over the place. And, it, you know, that's, that was the kind of flavor of the day. And then it was outworked by temple prostitution. It was an active action of prostitution within the temple, which was a fulfillment of that particular cult. He condemns the worship of other gods, uh, which was rebellion against the Sinai covenant. So again, other gods, other gods from other nations were also being worshipped within the context of the temple. He condemned the practice of human sacrifice, which was also uh, an abomination and also something that took place within the temple. He condemned the oppression of foreigners, widows and orphans, which was also against the covenant and their way of life. And he condemned the stubbornness and rebellion of the Israelites against God's warning, specifically, I've warned you. So all of these condemnations were coming against the people. When we come back into Ezekiel's prophecy of the new temple in verses 7 to 9b, God gives a reminder of what the temple must never become again. And if we just look at that, it says, He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet, this is where I'll live amongst the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and their lifeless idols of their kings and their high places when they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, the temple within the temple. With only a, a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices, so I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and their lifeless idols from their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple. So you've got this really, really defined call. Now, likelihood is what happened was the Holy of Holies was segregated in Zedekiah's period. So effectively, they closed the door on the Holy of Holies 
but the temple, which was a really large area with several courts, was utilized for all of these other practices. So it was just a kind of polytheistic experience when actually the Israelites were called to be fiercely monotheistic in a polytheistic culture. They were called to have one God and one God only, and yet they made the temple a, a traditional temple of polytheistic worship, which is what the Babylonians, ironically, were also practicing within Babylon with great aplomb. The irony was that the remnant in Jerusalem were practicing more of the practices of the Babylonians than the exiles were practicing in Babylon itself. So you see the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnigo, or you know, others in exile in different stories. You notice that those in exile choose not to eat the food of the king's table, choose not to defile themselves with the practices of uh, the, nation, the host nation, but set themselves apart. But the nation itself, they fold. It's fascinating to me how England, the United Kingdom, was the seat of Protestant mission around the world. And yet, Protestant missionaries from around the world are currently coming to the UK en masse to try and reconvert the host, to say, hey, it's time to come back to Jesus. You've lost your way. Sometimes when I travel to foreign countries, I find a kind of greater expression of Anglicanism than I do in my own Anglican country. Spend time in Uganda and in Kenya and go to Anglican churches there. I'm like, wow, this is really Anglican. And I mean, this is full on. This is the real deal. And not to discredit, of course, the Anglican church here at large, but it's, it's fascinating how that remnant have lost their way and yet those in exile have found great faith and fire. And Ezekiel is one of those speaking back to the host. Oh, how we've lost our way. If I was going to reduce this complex section of prophecy down to one core concept, it would be dualism. This sort of uh, twofold uh, experience, this uh, connection between the material and the personal, or, or the mental and the physical. In verse 7, there's this beautiful phrase, Son of man, uh, this is the place of my throne, material, and this is the place for the soles of my feet, personal. I find that somehow really profound. If I think about God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, I don't think he wore shoes. It was just God in the original temple walking with man and woman in perfect unity. And then God appears to Moses through the burning bush, says after so many years in slavery, this is holy ground, Moses Take off your shoes. Have bare feet. A temple again is like in the whisper. There's a temple that's going to be invited, you know, enabled again. Welcome back to the temple. And then we have this sort of whisper again of this kind of intimacy. This is going to be the place from the soles of my feet. Not material. You've lost sight of God when you just see him in the material. But in this personal, in this physical that we see fully realized in Jesus, who then kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. And they say, but surely, Lord, we should wash your feet. He says, unless I wash your feet, you have no place with me. There's this sort of incredible strand of invitation to get physical with God, to get personal with God, 
but also to see the value of the material. This sort of dualism can either be good or bad. It, it can either lead us into a material pathway where we're all about the kind of duty, which is our danger here, I think, in England. Go to church, tick the box, get a stamp. Or, or the very physical, Jesus is my buddy, high five Jesus today, don't bother with going to church because, hey, you know, you don't need to do that to be a Christian. That sort of divided dualism of either or is not really what God has called us to. He's called us to this sort of paradox of the both and. To see the kind of fury and power of God, the destroyer, and to fall face down on our knees, you know, like before him prostrate on the floor, but also to see him and the soles of his feet. The deeply personal, the deeply connected, the deeply rooted and real. Moses, he says, you stand on holy ground. Ezekiel, he's been called to say, you know, Ezekiel, look, I'm restoring holy ground for your people. Can you imagine for those who are in Babylon what that must have felt like? That actually God was going to strip out this defilement and he was going to restore this. The thing is that the reality is that this didn't exist anymore. This was destroyed because of Zedekiah's, uh, because pr practically because Zedekiah's duplicitousness with the king of, of Egypt, but also because God allowed the destruction of the temple because of the defilement of the temple under Zedekiah's reign. But there was a new temple that Ezekiel was prophesying over, not with a small flame, a sort of remnant, a less than, was something far more magnificent, something far greater than anything that had come before. And Ezekiel's temple prophecy is about the restoration of something that truly enables encounter. And so for the people over there to think about this over here, wow, can you imagine the life and the energy and the excitement and the, and the kind of energized atmosphere of faith towards this? Yes, the bridge is being restored. That was a lifeline. The people of Israel, evidenced in Zedekiah's behavior in the temple, is so material. God is distant. God is disinterested. And his response here in verse 8 uh, was to put something, you know, apparently uh, sort of defined, I guess, if, if we read it again. I, they placed their thresholds next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts. What does that remind you of? The Exodus, when the angel came and the lintels of the doors were covered with the blood of the lamb in order that people might be saved. The abomination was that there was salvation any other way. It wasn't just that there were detestable practices in temple prostitution, child sacrifice. Those were an abomination. But the greatest abomination was the suggestion that there was any other God than Yahweh. That you might set up your doorposts and your lintels inside the doorposts and lintels of a God who'd rescued you from slavery and restored your fortunes and enabled your inhabiting of the promised land. This was the greatest challenge. And this new temple, again, 
restored the image of a God who saves. This was the kind of heart bud of the Israelites, particularly for the Israelites in their exile. The final challenge is the reality that here in six whole chapters of Ezekiel are very detailed measurements to worship. Uh, you know, I could have preached a, re- this is a long sermon, I could have preached a really long sermon when we go through how many different cubits there are uh, around different entrances and exits to this particular temple. Probably wouldn't have held your t- attention for very long. But, you know, what I, what I notice is that if I flick open my Bible, the temple prophecy of Ezekiel is pretty much at the center. You know, it's, it's right at the heart of Christian scripture. This is a call to worship in a very specific, in a very detailed way. It, it matters. This stuff really matters. I, I wonder that we become quite generalized in our approach to Christian worship. In verse 12, Ezekiel calls it the law of the temple. Details seem to matter to God. And I just wonder if we approach church with the same reverence and particularity. If this was the most important two hours of your week, are you really living like it is? I mean, I'm I'm speaking to myself here. Am I really living like church really matters? You know, I get it that Jesus is our salvation, that ultimately Jesus has already sanctified us, and we maybe don't think about church in the same way that we might think about temple. But in terms of worshipfulness, here is our opportunity to give thanks to the God who has sanctified us, to bring our tithes and offerings into the storehouse, to give thanks to God for the saints, to really worship with our whole hearts. And, you know, I love the teas and coffees that they have at Naive, but are they stopping me from getting into the temple in order that I might give my tributes to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? You know, I love a game of cricket or golf, but is it is it stealing from my opportunity to bring my worship to the Lord? You know, I love hanging out with my buddies who don't know Jesus, but I've got a lot of time to do that. Is it, is it stopping me from spending time encouraging people who do know Jesus and want to grow in their faith and discipleship? Now, I don't want to like list it out, you know, you know where I'm going with this stuff and make everyone feel really bad. I felt really good about Will's sermon until like the last five minutes, and then I think he went really off-piste. It sounded really judgmental. I don't, want to, I don't want to sound judgmental. I'm just asking you curiously, if, if, if the Scripture, at the heart of Scripture, it lays out these conditions for temple worship, and they're so particular, they're so fine, they're so, they're so detailed, surely something rubs off. Like, surely something matters to us about the way in which we worship God in His temple. The way we prepare our hearts for temple. Because ultimately, The story of Scripture is that, yes, the remnant prophesy for the restoration of a temple. You know, yes, the the fire comes and the temple is restored. But ultimately, Christ came in order that we might become the temple. You know, that that we might establish the fire and that we might really be on fire for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that's the dream, not that we, like, just fold slowly into the, into the sort of materialism of the life that we live, but that we really come alive and alight for Christ in the world. And if you take an ember from the altar, it doesn't take long for it to cool. But if you take an ember to the altar, 
you'll be red hot and on fire. And I, I want to encourage you in Ezekiel's prophecy to say, how can I take the embers of my heart to the altar in the temple? I want to, I want to catch fire for you today, Lord. Now, I, I, want to, I want to challenge the temple within the temple in order that I have a pure heart, making me a pure heart of God. Shape me for your worship. Make me an instrument of your peace in a broken and hurting world. I want to make a difference. Set my heart on fire. Amen. Why don't we stand? The band are going to come back and begin to lead us in worship. And we've got, you know, say 10 or so minutes to, to press in now.